Mark chapter 14, verse 12. And the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover, his disciples said unto him, Where wilt thou that we go and prepare that thou mayest eat the Passover? And our subject is simply the first Lord's Supper. Now in verse 10, And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went unto the chief priests to betray him unto them. And we read in Matthew's Gospel that he asked them, What will you pay me? And uh, here in verse 11 of Mark 14, when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. Promised is perhaps a, a little misleading. Undertook to give him money would be better because the words used both in Matthew's Gospel and Mark's Gospel could imply that they waded out to him there and then. So they undertook to give him money and if we understand those words in the other Gospels correctly, they actually waded out to him. That's very likely. And he sought how he might conveniently betray him. Conveniently. Well, that means that Judas began to consider when the opportunity would come when he could give the signal and the information to the chief priests and they could successfully take Christ secretly, the crowds not knowing, not being aware of it, because the chief priests, scribes and Pharisees feared on account of his great popularity. They wanted to know where he might be, out of hours, as it were, in some unknown-to-them place, so that they could gather a group of militia and take him. But, of course, he knew the time. Christ knew the time. He knew exactly what would happen, and he was ready to be taken. Now the time had come, and he was willing to be arrested. But Judas sought how he might conveniently betray him. And when they were to take that uh, supper, that night, it's the Thursday night, Thursday of the last week of the earthly life of our Lord. And on that day, when they prepared the feast and took that supper, with him, and then he inaugurated the Lord's Supper for his people until the end of time. Well, there was a betrayer in the midst. Judas was there, certainly for the Passover Supper, if not for the Lord's Supper. Very unlikely he was there for the crucial parts of the first Lord's Supper. He'd gone to betray the Lord. But he sat at that table or reclined at that table for the Passover feast with the Lord, probably with the 30 pieces of silver equal to 90 days' pay in his pocket. 
So verse 12, the first day of unleavened bread, the Thursday. The Passover lamb had been bought and killed in the temple courtyard that they were to eat in an upper room, unknown at the stage that the Passover was killed in the courtyard. The disciples said unto him, time was going on. Time was late. Most people had prepared the Passover meal in their homes. The disciples said unto him, Where wilt thou that we go and prepare that thou mayest eat the Passover? Why was it left so late? The lamb had probably been slain. The day was drawing on. It was getting on for the time when it must be prepared. Well, because Judas must not know until the last minute so that he couldn't arrange a betrayal to interrupt the Passover. That was vital. The Lord's last moments with the disciples. The first Lord's Supper was to be inaugurated. Verse 13, And the Lord sendeth forth two of his disciples, Peter and John, Luke tells us, and saith unto them, Go ye into the city, Jerusalem, and there shall meet you a man bearing a pitcher of water. That would be unusual. Usually the women bore on their heads the pitchers of water. So it's probably an unusual sign. It was a man bearing such a pitcher of water. And he would almost run into them, according to Mark. Follow him where he goes. And he'll go to a house. It'll be a large house, evidently. And wherever he shall go, verse 14, say to the ye, to the good man of the house, the householder, the master saith, this man is clearly a disciple of Christ. He knows what's to take place already. Where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared. There make ready for us. So we begin to look at the Passover feast. First of all, verse 16. And the disciples went forth, came into the city, found as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. And in the evening he cometh with the twelve, including Judas, and as they sat and did eat, the shocking news comes. Mark covers it very briefly. Matthew says look more. So does Luke. As they sat and did eat, Jesus said, Verily, truly, most certainly, I solemnly tell you, I say unto you, One of you which eateth with me shall betray me. And they were, of course, deeply shocked. And in verse 19, they began to be sorrowful. Deeply upset, and to say unto him one by one, Is it I? They're uncertain. 
Could I do such a thing? Could I betray the Lord? Well, their spiritual state and condition is very good in a way. They're not carried by self-righteousness. They don't say, that couldn't possibly be me. They're people who've learned to search their hearts. They want to be genuine. This is terrible. Could it possibly be me? And the Passover supper begins with self-examination. Surely it couldn't be me. First one, then another said, Is it I? And if I turn for a moment to Matthew chapter 26 and verse 21, you read the Matthew account, and as they did eat, he said, Verily I sound you that one of you shall betray me. And they were exceeding sorrowful and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. That became a sign later on, but not at this stage, because they would all be dipping in the dish. It'll be one of you, he says, that shares my supper. And then he said to them, verse 24, The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him, but woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. And even after that solemn warning, verse 23 or 25 of Matthew chapter 26, then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? He knew full well the money was in his pocket. He'd already agreed the betrayal. He's such a hypocrite, he can say, is it I? Is it right to notice little things? The others, they say, Lord, is it I? But Judas says, Master, is it I? The others said, Lord, he was to them the Son of God. But Judas says, Rabbi, translated here, Master. It appears he can't bring himself to say, Lord, even in his hypocrisy. He has to say, Teacher, is it I? Could it possibly be me? And Christ said unto him, Thou hast said, and the others don't yet pick that up. But I go back to Mark's Gospel. Chapter 14. And I come down to verse 18. As they sat and did eat, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, One of you which eateth with me shall betray me. And then down to verse 22. As they did eat... A lot has taken place before we get to verse 22. I won't turn to it, but if we were to turn to John's Gospel, 
you'd find that after the initial stage of the supper, Christ rises and he takes the towel and he teaches them that great lesson in humility. He washes their feet. And then it seems, after the washing of feet, if we understand it correctly in John's Gospel, the supper resumes. And Judas receives from his hand and goes out to commit his act of betrayal. And at that stage, the Lord's Supper itself begins. And I believe that that is the correct understanding of the order. There is the Passover Supper. There is the great act of humility on the part of the Lord as he washes their feet. He's come to go to Calvary to bring about the washing away of sin. It's also a lesson in humility. Then Judas is dispatched and he is not there for the first Lord's Supper. And here we pick up at verse 22 of Mark 14. As they did eat, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it. The inaugural Lord's Supper, right after the Passover feast. And so it should be. The Passover feast commemorated the lamb that they ate the last day in Egypt before their great deliverance. The lamb that was itself a foreshadowing of the lamb of God, Christ, who would take away the sin of the world. Now there'll be no more Passovers. Now the Jewish order, the Old Testament order and their worship is at a close. Christ has fulfilled all the illustrations, the types and the shadows of the Old Testament law. And now is the first Lord's Supper which replaces it. Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Of course, anyone can see it wasn't his body, literally. How could it be? He was still there. He was not yet crucified and risen from the dead and glorified and in heaven. It was not his body, but he said, take, eat, this is my body. How could that be? This is my body, when it was not his body. He was there, handing it to them. Because this is my body, clearly and obviously and incontrovertibly means this represents my body. This is a symbol of my body. That's the only possible meaning because he was there in the body, which means that the belief of the Roman Catholic Church that the bread becomes his body is a complete absurdity and a nonsense. It is not literal, it is figurative. 
This is my body, the symbol of my body. That's the meaning. And that's the meaning until Christ comes again. The wine is the symbol of his poured out blood, his life and his blood poured out and shed for us. The bread, the loaf, that represents his body, broken, as it were, on Calvary's cross and punished for us, his body broken and tortured. Of course, the largest part of his suffering by far was within, in his soul, when God the Father laid upon him all the guilt of every single person who would ever be forgiven, those who would come to him and love him and live for him, those who would trust in him, and for them he would suffer and die. It was a suffering beyond description in the body, yes, but in his holy being and soul, vastly more so. Well, the broken bread represents his body, broken for us. And just as the disciples did, we eat it. What does that symbolize? That the benefits of the suffering and death of Christ, his being punished for us, to secure forgiveness for us, the benefits of his suffering enter right into us symbolically. We receive Christ, we trust in him, and his poured out life enters into us. We receive within us forgiveness and life-changing spiritual life. So the Lord's Supper, we eat to symbolize that we receive Christ and his death. In believing, we receive it, we embrace it, we take it in. And its power and blessing changes us as we are born again, changes our nature, changes our feelings, changes our mind and our outlook. We take in the benefits of Christ, the meaning of the Lord's Supper. He broke bread and he said, this is my body. Take, eat, take it right in to yourself. To believe in Christ is not merely to mentally assent to the fact that he lived and he came to earth and he suffered and died. It's not just a mental act, a mental assent. Believing means to embrace him, to take him and to depend upon him and to receive him entirely in life. This is my body. Take and eat. And it goes on. Verse 18, as they sat and did eat, Jesus said, one of you shall betray him.
But down in verse 22, this is my body. And verse 23, he took the cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And Matthew and Luke had the details. He also said, this is the blood of the covenant, the new covenant shed for the remission of sins. Here in verse 24, it's put more briefly, this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many, not for everyone, not for everyone. How do you know if it's shed for you? You know, because you've received him. There's been a work in your heart of the Holy Spirit regenerating you, opening your eyes to see your need and to see the meaning of the death of Christ. And with your whole heart, you've received him and depended upon him. And so now you're one of the many which is shed for many. Blood of the New Testament, the New Covenant. That's an interesting term. Why does Christ call it a new covenant? Because it's new in this sense. Now it's fully exposed to view, fully revealed, fully manifested. It's new in the sense that the old covenant, the Old Testament worship, that covenant with the Jewish people has ended. And now, in plain sunlight, glorious sunlight, the new covenant of Christ, that you come to God by Christ and by his work, that's on full display. It's the new covenant in that sense. It isn't really very new. In fact, and this you have to understand, dear friends, the new covenant is even older than the old covenant. The new covenant has been all along the real covenant that matters. Right from the very beginning, it was disclosed in the book of Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, that Christ would one day, a redeemer, a great descendant, would one day come and bruise the serpent's head and suffer the bruising of his heel. He would pay a price to crush the serpent and to conquer sin. It's the first, in Genesis 3, the first promise of redemption. It's the new covenant, in a sense, first being announced. And do you know anybody who truly was converted in Old Testament times was converted under this covenant of grace because they believed in the worship of the Old Testament, that the sacrifices and so on 
pointed forward to something that God would one day do to take away the burden of sin and the guilt of their sin. And if they truly trusted in the mercy of God and yielded their hearts to him, they were saved under the covenant of grace. What is the covenant of grace? Oh, it isn't a covenant made between God and man. Because any covenant made between God and man will fail because of the weakness of man. He won't keep it. If God says, obey me and you'll have everlasting life, such a covenant will fail because man won't obey God. And he'll sin against him, and he'll fall, and he'll fail. Friends, the covenant of grace wasn't made between God and man. It was made between God and God. It was made between the members of the Godhead. And we portray it in this manner. It is as though, in eternity, God said to the Son, Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity. If you will go and die for a fallen people in the future history of the world, if you will die for them and bear away the punishment of sin on behalf of millions of people who will be redeemed, I will give them to you and they will be your possession for all eternity. And they will people the everlasting glory, the new heavens and the new earth. And the Holy Spirit, for his part, undertook to come and work in hearts and show us our need and reveal Christ to us. The covenant of grace was something mysterious between the three persons of the Trinity, the Godhead in eternity. And an agreement made within the Godhead, between the members of the Godhead, cannot fall, cannot fail, because they are infallible, they are eternal God. And everyone who was ever saved and converted in Old Testament times was actually converted under the covenant of grace. Christ would undertake for them their sin would be borne away by Christ when he came. And they engaged in the sacrifices with believing hearts. This sacrifice is a picture of what Messiah will somehow do for us. But it was a new covenant when Christ came in the sense that it was newly revealed to the whole world. And made plain. You could understand it now. Because Christ had actually died on Calvary. So Christ says. This is my blood. This wine. Or grape juice. Represents the blood of the new covenant. Which is shed for many. And then he said. Verse 25. Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom 
of God. Dear friends, I'd like to spend just a few moments talking about the Lord's Supper. How highly do you value the Lord's Supper? Here it is, inaugurated right next to the Passover Supper. The one replaces the other. Christ is the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. What does it mean to you? Let me very briefly mention a number of things. The Lord's Supper. First of all, it's an ordinance of obedience. Do you know what an ordinance is? I'm sure most of you do. An ordinance is something which is ordained, something which is commanded. When we speak of an ordinance among believers, among Christians, we speak of the ordinances of Christ, the specially commanded and inaugurated rites, R-I-T-E-S, ceremonies of the church. There are only two. There are only two ordinances. The Roman Catholic Church calls them sacraments, which is an entirely wrong thing to do and has a number. But there are only two rites or ceremonies actually ordained, commanded, provided, laid down by Christ. They are baptism and the Lord's Supper. They are the only two ceremonies in the Christian church started by Christ which have symbols. Baptism, of course, has the symbol of water. It represents two things, but we're not talking about that. It represents cleansing, complete washing from sin, and it represents earth being buried to the old life and rising to the new. So there's a symbol of water. And in baptism, that's what we say. I've died. The old life has gone. I've been given a new life as a believer, and I've risen from the dead then there's the Lord's Supper the bread the body broken and the wine the poured out blood and life of Christ only two ordinances never sacraments sacraments speak of some special blessing or grace coming through the sacrament and being communicated into you mystically, almost physically, mystically. A sacrament must communicate and impart. You get your life and blessing from the inaction of the sacrament. Nonsense. Nothing like that in Christianity. No magic power flowing through the priest's cuffs. No such thing. That's superstition. That's Catholicism. Ordinances, as the result of your faith and your heart being engaged in the meaning of the symbols, you are mightily blessed spiritually. 
but nothing flows to you literally from the bread or the wine or in any mystical manner. The blessing comes through faith into your soul from God. So this is an ordinance. First of all, it's an ordinance, something commanded by Christ of obedience. Do this, he says, in remembrance of me. Somebody here, and you're a believer, and you love the Lord, and you slip out before the Lord's Supper. Don't you hear the voice of the Savior, the one who bought you? Do this in remembrance of me. Dear friends, it's an ordinance of glad obedience. Of course, we engage in the Lord's Supper. It's an ordinance for us, not only of obedience, it's an ordinance of thanksgiving. We are so thankful at the Lord's Supper. Let me say the Lord's Supper is not a funeral. We don't gather with dismal hearts. How sad, how sad we are at the death of the Lord, at the loss of the Lord. Of course, there's, a little, there's an element of sadness because my sin nailed him to that cross. Of course, there's an element of sadness, but it isn't a sad occasion. And when we sing a hymn before the funeral service, uh, rather before the Lord's Supper service, whatever it is, we don't sing it as though we're at a funeral. Ooh, quieten down the organ. Quieten down the lead. Sing it under your breath. This is so sad. No, this is an ordinance of thanksgiving, friends. Tinged with sadness because, as I say, our sins nailed him to Calvary and we've examined ourselves. But what Christ did for us in suffering and dying, this is amazing to us. This is the most wonderful thing possible. And he triumphed and he bore away our guilt and rose from the dead and now reigns in heaven and we wait his appearance. No, no. We can even sing, when I survey the wondrous cross with great gladness. This is the most wonderful event in the history of the universe. It is an ordinance of gladness overall, not of sorrow and dismay. Then it's an ordinance of assurance. It assures our hearts. I've already spoken about this. We take the bread and we drink the cup. We take in the benefits of the cross of Christ. What he did and the price he paid and his greatest act of obedience to suffer and to die for his people in obedience to what he'd undertaken to do. This flows into us. This is the basis of our life. We take in the benefits of the cross of Christ. So at the Lord's Supper, 
I am one who has taken in the benefits of Calvary. Calvary is life to me, and heaven and eternity, it's everything to me. It assures me. It's Christ's way of assuring me. Take, eat, this is my body that I'm giving to you, and you've received it. So it assures my heart, and it makes me more determined to conquer my sin. And when I'm at the Lord's Supper, and I think of Calvary, what has the world got? Why do I ever give way to worldly allurements? Why in my worst moments have I ever thought, oh, I'm sorry that I had to leave this behind and that behind, as the children of Israel, when they were delivered, regretted after a while, leaving Egypt and its distinctive foodstuffs and things. And they forgot about the slavery and they hankered after some of the things. What a tragedy, what a shame. But at the Lord's Supper, we can't do that. We see this world as fallen and doomed, and we don't want it. There's a verse that uh, Isaac Watts wrote, which is usually dropped from when the hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, and he puts it like this. His dying crimson, like a robe, spread o'er his body on the tree, then am I dead to all the globe, and all the globe is dead to me. He means the world. And the Lord's Supper does that to you. You think so much of your gratitude to the cross of Christ and the wonderful thing that Christ has done, that the world is nothing in those moments and your determination to part with it is never stronger so it's an ordinance of assurance it's an ordinance of sanctification is it I is it I and we could turn over as we come to conclusion to 1st Corinthians and uh, chapter 11 and there in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. We examine our hearts and we repent before we come. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup of someone who's had a renewed, a fresh sense of his dependence upon Calvary and upon the blood of Christ. And that's the spirit in which we come to the Lord's Supper. Dear friends, it's an ordinance of sanctification. It's an ordinance of commitment. Yield ourselves afresh, utterly, and holy to the Lord. It's an ordinance of anticipation. And so it is here in the in First Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says, 
Verse 26, for as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. We're very conscious that every Lord's Supper service is also looking forward to the time when he comes again. Interesting little word there, ye do show the Lord's death. It's such a mild word. We do show it. The Greek is proclaim. Make known. You could translate it preach. In the Lord's Supper and its symbols, we preach and proclaim the Lord's death till he come. Who are we preaching to? Who are the listeners? We're preaching it to ourselves. We're the family of God, sitting at the Lord's Supper. And in the taking of the elements, the bread broken and the wine, we are proclaiming and preaching something all over again to ourselves. The preciousness of the atoning death of Christ our Saviour. We're preaching it and proclaiming it. We're understanding it. We're taking it in all over again as though we've never been saved before. And we're dedicating ourselves afresh to him. Friends, there were so many things I would like to tell you about the Lord's Supper. As often as you do this, you're proclaiming and anticipating Christ. It is, of course, an ordinance of togetherness. The disciples had that meal with the Lord. The Lord's Supper brings the converted people of God together. Who is at the Lord's Supper? Well, we should only come if we found Christ. We should only be there if we truly know him. If anyone comes to the Lord's Supper and they cannot say, I have found the Lord, I have believed in him, given my life to him, found him to be my saviour, and I walk with him, well then, observe, but don't take the bread and the wine. It's for believers. It represents their taking in the benefits of the cross of Christ. I remind you, Judas, in all probability, was not there. The first Lord's Supper was 11 true believers. It is something for believers. But those are some of the purposes, some of the meaning of the Lord's Supper. And... uh, We preach about it today and we talk about it today because it's here. We've been working through the Gospel of Mark and here we are, confronted with the first Lord's Supper. What a blessing to our hearts.